welcome back to Compliance for the Sake of the Patient. John Mitchell back with you again here, and I've got Steve Sponbrook. And once again, back by popular demand, Gordon Burrell with Tigor Consulting. Gordon, Steve, how are you today? Doing great, John. Thanks for asking. Uh, you sound good. I'm kind of glad I can't see you right now. We have some stay-at-home orders all around the country, and it feels like like Blur's Day the 11th or something. I don't know if you guys feel like I do, but no idea what day it is or what time it is, but we are in the middle of a, a pandemic, and we're trying to figure this out in the middle of it. It's a conversation today about monitoring, um, so I'm excited to get a chance to turn this over to Steve and Gordon and kind of step out of the way to let the smart people talk for a minute um, <laughs> and let you guys go. So, Steve, I'll turn it over to you and let you kind of guide the conversation today about modern, modern, monitoring with Gordon. So. Yeah, that was easy to say, Yeah, right, right. I can't even say it, none less talk about it. <laughs> By the way, there's a lot of people who are happy that they can't see me right now. But um, anyway, that's another story for another time. But it is, uh, it's great to have Gordon with us. Um, again, he's, he is the expert of experts. He's my go-to guy that I call. And by the way, I want to just kind of apologize. We had some audio difficulties last time, but the, the podcast was so good and Gordon was so brilliant. We decided we want to go ahead and put that thing out there, even though I sounded kind of weird. Hopefully today will be much better, but we are uh, coming from you live from the quarantine headquarters of MSL Healthcare today um, and have Gordon with us. And, and Gordon, Gordon and I have a lot of discussions, by the way, about monitoring. So this is going to be just like uh, what we do when we're hanging out at dinner or yeah, we really uh, are kind of used that way, aren't we? It's pretty sad, I know, but uh, for sure, this is a subject that we talk about a great deal, and uh, you know, it's you know, it's almost an afterthought a lot of times when hospitals are putting together mitigation plans once they've done a risk assessment. They go, okay, well, you know, here's what we're going to do, or the risk is what we're going to mitigate them, um, and then you know, in the eleventh hour, or the the last five minutes of the meeting, oh yeah, what are we going to do to monitor this thing? And, and what I'd like to do, Gordon, really is talk about it from two different perspectives. Because there's really, even though there's going to be hopefully a singular, singular, easy for me to say, a single or singular monitoring plan uh, that unfolds for each project, the owner's perspective and the contractor's perspective may be completely different or slightly different or different enough they end up with one plan that's broader than you would have if either one of those entities developed a plan on their own. So let's just start out with the contractor's perspective, because my guess is that most people who listen to this podcast are probably uh, the contractor um, and, and have an interest in that. And uh, I think we said it last week when we were putting together the last podcast regarding uh, cleanliness is that you know, uh, the unfortunate reality is without a good monitoring program and good documentation associated with that, in the event that we have an outbreak that occurs in a hospital, particularly with fungal infections, that's, you know, coincides with a construction project, the likelihood that the finger of blame is going to be pointed to the contractor is pretty high. And without any monitoring, there's really no defense. So, you know, I know you deal with this a lot. What are some of the things, and let's kind of talk generically first about monitoring. And then we'll get into some of the specifics about types of monitoring and the pitfalls of those as we get through this discussion, if that's all right with you. Yeah, sure. I mean, generally speaking, when you when you think about any sort of a renovation project and even major new construction projects for for hospitals, um, 
it's generally held that you want the construction site to be negative pressure compared to the rest of the building. Basically, you want to create an airflow dynamic where the air moves from the cleaner part of the building towards the construction site. And of course, you need to do that with uh, a certain degree of care in that you want to be aware of where you're pulling that air from. And certainly in the in the age of coronaviruses, everybody is particularly acutely aware of that. Um, but on in, working on the premise that you're pulling the air from a clean space and you're getting it into the construction zone and you've generated what everybody calls a negative pressure, uh, although there are times that you generate that through other means, but you're still creating that clean to less clean or clean to dirty airflow dynamic. Um, the question then becomes how much air needs to be moving in order to ensure that any potential pathogen and, and most of the cases in construction sites, we're talking about airborne fungal spores that are kind of resident or attached to the dust that's in the air. Um, and, and how do you get a level that's competent that you can have a, a, a good degree of confidence that you're keeping that little critter that could cause an immune compromised patient to get sick and perhaps even die uh, away from them? And we, we do generally do that by generating these negative pressures on the construction site. And most hospitals, most organizations will want a certain degree of confidence that that's actually occurring. And it's the, it's the monitoring equipment that can give you that confidence from, uh, you know, based on your investment. You can get relatively rudimentary and simple monitoring systems that allow you to say, I have air going in the right direction to very elaborate and complex systems that uh, allow you to monitor multi multiple points, allow you to uh, remote report. And a lot of that depends on risk. So construction, um, managing a construction site in a, in a hospital is all about risk management. In fact, I, you know, I've often said that, uh, you know, some of the best risk managers in the world are construction site superintendents because they're managing a lot of different types of risks on their construction sites. Um, and one way to manage risk effectively is to actually measure it, to know where it is, to, to know whether you're um, taking care of it appropriately. And, and without the aid of some kind of a monitoring device, you're not going to be able to do that. Yeah, you know, I think people are really acutely aware of these sort of uh, hidden risk and high risk populations related to COVID-19 because we're all dealing with it right now. And you hear a lot of stuff in the news about why it's important for young, healthy people to stay at home and distance themselves from the rest of the population when it's really, at least the original discussion was it was the people that were above age 65 that had uh, comorbidities like, you know, diabetes and respiratory, COPD, whatever those things, you know, these other mitigating or contributing factors to their, uh, uh, poor health that would make them really susceptible to this thing and likely to die from it. And you can really apply that same sort of thought process to, well, let me brief, let me go back one step. So you know, why should the young people stay home? Cause they could potentially be carrying this thing as super carriers, completely symptom, asymptomatic walking around, you know, uh, infecting the old population and, and these dust particles and these things that we're trying to contain in a construction site 
are essentially our super carriers with a, really the same kind of high risk population that's out there. Uh, the, the difference is, you know, most likely, uh, 80% of the occupants of the hospital, I'm making that number up probably, but it's probably pretty close, are have a robust enough immunity system that if they're exposed to one of these fungal spores or organisms that we're concerned about, it's, they're never even going to know it happened because their immunity system is just going to take care of it. Um, but it's that neonate, it's that immunocompromised oncology patient or transplant patient that if they're exposed to it, they're going to be the ones that are in real trouble. Correct. Well, I, I think that's a that's a very fair analogy in that. Uh, there's there's always for for infections to be transferred from any location one to another. You need some sort of a carrier, um, and and we're recognizing in the in the case of the coronavirus or COVID nineteen that uh, in a lot of cases that that carrier or that vector is a human being, uh, healthy or less than healthy. But the same is true when we talk about trying to control the potential for uh, fungal or bacteria infections in hospitals around construction zones, uh, certainly the individuals and think about a construction worker who's maybe exiting from a uh, from a renovation project and going into the hallway of a construct or into the hallway of a hospital and they haven't cleaned themselves off properly, they, they can be the vector. The other mechanism that's uh, that's very concerning around hospital renovation sites is the air movement. And, you know, there was a, a great study, I think you talked about it uh, in the last podcast, that the, the National Health Service here in Canada, Health Canada, put together that talked about uh, infections caused by construction and maintenance work in hospitals. And it showed that about 80, 80% to 85% of the cases were uh, the vector happened to be uh, airflow, that the fungal spores were attaching themselves to uh, small dust particles, they were traveling on the airstreams and we didn't have, we don't have a filtration that's appropriate to catch the very small particles in the one and two micron size range. And as a result of that, they get transmitted through the hospital. So there's part of that chain of infection is the, is the vector that we just talked about. And, and the other part of the chain of infection is the susceptible host, which is that immunocompromised or immunosuppressed patient. Um, and, and it depends on the hospital you're working in. I mean, uh, I, I've worked with, uh, with hospitals that were uh, pediatric oncology centers that deal with long-term patient kids with cancer. Well, their whole population in that building is deemed to be immunocompromised because even the healthy care workers that are caring for the children are potential vectors to that immunocompromised patient. So people are thinking through what that transport methodology is. And we can use monitoring around construction sites, if you will, as a way of keeping an eye on those potential vectors. Right. You know, one of the things we when we talk about monitoring, we start talking about equipment, and we're going to get to that here in a little bit. But, you know, one thing I, I want people to be keenly aware of is one piece of equipment that you should never overlook is a pair of very well-trained observant eyes. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, and it kind of goes back to this COVID thing again, where, you know, you, you the, the vector, we're, we're all aware of the people around us and we're drawing these six foot invisible circles around us and trying to uh, stay away from those. And, you know, you go out to the grocery store or whatever, and you see the, the people that aren't being uh, as compliant with that as they should be. And you're, you're aware of that, but you're on edge. And you know, we want that same level of awareness 
with these construction projects that we're doing uh, way after this COVID thing's a, a distant memory, hopefully, you know, these risks are still going to be in our projects and, and we're always going to have to come up with ways to mitigate them. Um, so, that, you know, in terms of monitoring, when we talk about, you know, certainly a well-trained pair of eyes, but um, from air quality perspective, we, we talked about differential pressure in an earlier podcast. We didn't really talk about, we talked a little bit about monitoring, but, um, you know, a couple Give us a couple of examples you've seen where people have used equipment to monitor differential pressure and some of the you know, positives and negatives you see with those. Well, certainly, I mean, there's there's a wide range here, and uh, um, depending on what the risk is, the investment to offset that risk kind of goes hand in hand with that. Uh, each hospital generally has discussions amongst their sort of uh, team in the, in the building of what they see as appropriate measures for mitigating risks. Some will quantify it. They'll actually give you a level of pressure that they want to see. And others will just simply say, just make sure that your space is negatively pressurized. So if we start perhaps at the at the lesser end of risk mitigation with what I would call qualitative type monitors, uh, there's there's a number of those in the market from uh, you know simple flutter strips to uh, ping pong balls that can be drawn through acrylic tubes or uh, simple water gauge manometers that um, allow you to be able to demonstrate and and continually keep an eye on that the fact that the air is going in the direction that you want to. The big advantage of those is they tend to be relatively simple easy for somebody who's never worked with this stuff before to figure out how to use them. The disadvantage is uh, that, that uh, so although some of them are quantifiable, most of them are not. Most of them are just a qualitative read of, is it positive or is it negative? So you get some advantage by using those. There are other devices, more expensive devices, that will give you a, a better advantage again. So you kind of step up the ladder to some of the quantitative devices without any sort of record keeping methodologies on those. And again, we've got some of the uh, aluminum flutter strips that you can calibrate based on the, the airflow uh, and the weight of the flutter strip. You can determine exactly where the flutter strip needs to be to verify you know, whether it's 0.01 or 0.02 inches of water column that the hospital happens to want. Uh, the, the, the better sort of uh, ping pong ball type systems that have uh, an appropriate slope on them that you have to pull the ball up the slope under a negative pressure. And depending on how big that slope is, uh, the higher slope, the higher pressure you have to have to maintain the ping pong ball at the top of the hill. And then the one that a lot of people are very, very familiar with would be sort of a magnahelic gauge that you might see on some air handling equipment and those types of things. Again, these are all quantifiable. Uh, they're also uh, just a little bit more complex than the qualitative ones. And one of the challenges that we see with, with a lot of those is that um, if they're not installed properly, if people don't understand how they work effectively, then they actually don't give you accurate readings. Uh, if people understand how they work and they get them installed, they get the acrylic tube at the right slope, or they, you know, they get the the uh, the pressure tubes on the magnahelic gauges in the right places, 
then they're actually very reliable, relatively simple types of mechanical devices. There's no major electronics or any of those types of things in there that can go wrong. Second disadvantage, if that's what you want to call it, with those types of devices is that um, most of those don't come with any degree of alarming or notification systems on them. Big advantage of those ones is they're quantifiable and they're reasonably inexpensive. You go up the ladder a little bit further than that and you start to get into some of the digital um, differential pressure monitoring equipment and and you know the bells and whistles here kind of are, are all over everywhere you get what you pay for uh, the most basic of those has a has a digital readout uh, usually some type of an alarming device either audible or visual or or both uh, very common for them to have both uh, on the digital gauges and most of them not all of them but most of them actually have uh, a storage component so they're able to hang on to the data for some number of data points or some number of time uh, and those types of things. So the, the real big advantage to these ones is if something goes sideways on the construction site, they have they have the ability to let you know, either flash a light at you or squawk a little horn at you of some type to let you to let you know that there's a, a problem uh, pending. Now if you take those ones and start to add the bells and whistles to them, uh, the uh, the bells and whistles involve external reporting, so you can get them that uh, we'll send uh, text messages or we'll uh, broadcast data via Bluetooth or over a construction site Wi-Fi to some central monitoring point. And all of a sudden, you can get a, a very elaborate uh, monitoring system with full alarming. But all of that comes at a cost. And not every project has risks that would warrant that kind of uh, an investment. We're, we're starting to even see um, multiple data point uh, differential pressure monitoring devices. So a, a, a data logger that can actually pick up uh, two or three or four different differential pressure points um, and, and report those in series so it can identify if there are anomalies that are starting to happen. Because generally speaking, a construction site should be trending pressures pretty consistently unless there's failure of negative air equipment or barriers or something along those lines. So you can almost, not almost, you can now through differential pressure monitoring, have your devices keep an eye on say the door. If the door gets opened and it stays open, uh, one part of the construction site that might not necessarily overly affect the pressure in one place, but does in another, these differential pressure monitoring devices are able to say, hey, the readings between this location and that location are different than they should be. Send an alarm to somebody uh, in an appropriate location uh, and then have that person come and look at it. So you talked about having a well-trained set of eyes. This becomes a technological set of eyes that's looking at the differential pressure on a 24-hour day basis. Yeah, and you're speaking of training or well-trained, I, mean, I know together we have seen more than one occasion where it's particularly some of these uh, lesser expensive, lesser complex devices, the you know, ball in the wall and the magnet helix have been installed inappropriately, you know, basically a user error. Mm -hmm. um, 
and in some cases were you know they were true user errors and other cases we're not so sure they weren't intentionally done that way but um the bottom line is if you know say for example take magma helix for example we install that on our barrier um if we don't have that properly calibrated that needle is going to point somewhere in, a, in an inappropriate location and may provide a very false sense of security for everybody involved in this project that we're maintaining a good differential airflow from clean to dirty um, when in reality it may be the exact opposite of that um, so go yeah, ahead. i think that's absolutely true so i think there's you know you you, you can't take away the, the value of that trained pair of eyes. Uh, and, and particularly in, in my case, when I look at a lot of these things, it's, uh, it's a matter of not only are you well-trained to know what you're looking at, but you also have a critical mindset to say, does that make sense, right? The fact that, uh, I mean, we've been on a site at one stage where they, where they talked about having differential pressure in excess of an inch of water column. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the heck do you keep the barrier walls up at that kind of pressure? Yeah. But they weren't actually reading the pressure gauge on the, on the dividing wall or the demising wall on the construction site. They were, they were reading a, a pressure gauge that was mounted on their negative air machine to indicate the static pressure across the filters in the negative air machine. Now, not that anybody was trying to make any kind of a mistake here or trying to pull the wool over somebody's eyes. They just looked at the, the gauge that was on their device and thought that was giving them the measurement of pressure within the space. So there's, right. there's, there's no substitute for uh, somebody with the ability who's been trained on how each individual piece of equipment works because they're all different. Um, and even more importantly, somebody who has the ability when they come out at first thing in the morning and look at the site to say, uh, that doesn't look right. It's showing 0 0.05 inches of water column, but the door's jammed open. Something's wrong. Right. Well, I mean, just recently I ran into a scenario where one of the uh, HEPA filter manufacturers had changed their design and eliminated the magna helic on the unit and just have a light that comes on and says time change filter. Um, right. And the downside to that is you now really have no indication of if do you have enough pressure there to indicate that you got a proper seal with the HEPA filter? And that's one of the nice things about the magnet helix. You say, well, it's between an inch and a half, three inches. Chances are it's sealed and it's doing its job. Um, and, the, and when I talked to the manufacturer's representative about it, they said, well, basically people were not understanding that magnet helix and were, that was causing a problem. So they simplified it. And I understand that. I mean, that's a great thing to do if you're a manufacturer to make it simpler for the user um, you know, from their perspective, they just need to know or want to know when it's time to put a new filter in, especially because those filters are expensive. Um, but on the flip side of that, we also need to have a way to make sure that that filter is sitting in that unit and sealed properly so we're not getting significant blow by um, and a false sense of security. So, so that's a, probably a nice segue into how can you verify beyond just a light or magnet helix on one of these units um, that your HEPA filters are working the way you intend them to work. Uh, and uh, one of the negative air machines you're talking about now. Yeah, exactly. Sorry about that. No, that's all right. That's all right. I'm used to your ADD. I'm used to things. I was going to say, you're kind of used to that. I'm to the next. Um, yeah, exactly. 
Uh, well, I mean, there's there's certainly a, there's a number of qualitative checks that you can do in that area. But if, if you want to sort of get a um, what I call the red flag test on a negative air machine would be uh, looking at particular count testing both upstream and downstream of the machine. You've got a series of filters in most of those machines. They typically have, you know, a, kind of a, a woven pre-filter fabric that's not you know, it's not a not a great filter fabric, but what it what it does is it captures all the all the big stuff, all the rocks and flies, so you don't have to use your very expensive filter to capture that stuff. And then the secondary would be they they would go through some sort of a what a lot of people would call a filter for an air handling unit, a pleated fiberglass filter, generally manufactured by filter makers and so on. Um, and then third, you get into this HEPA filter. Well, a HEPA filter is an incredibly efficient filter. It's actually stopping um, the vast majority of microscopic particles that we're talking about. That that you know, 99.97% is pretty close to 100%. It's not perfect, but it's pretty close to 100%. And the particle sizes that it's capturing is is down into the range of about 0.3 microns in size. Well, our eyes can only see down to maybe 10 or 12 microns. So there's a whole host of particulate below our visual ability to see that the filter is actually capturing. So there's really no way to visually check a HEPA filter and say, oh yeah, that looks like it's working right. Because the particles that it's trying to stop are below our ability to see that's too small for us to see. So you need some sort of a, a piece of equipment that can, uh, through electronic means, see those, smart par those very small particles. Uh, and, and we tend to use an awful lot, uh, you know, relatively simple particle counters. Well, I call them relatively simple. They're the more expensive ones on the market. But multi-channeled particle counters that can actually separate the particles into the different size ranges that will help you to identify whether or not a HEPA filter is doing the job that it wants to do. But it's, it's relatively simple from a mathematics perspective. You measure the total number of particles on the upstream side or the intake side of a negative air machine. And you get those across four, five, six channels, depending on the type of particle counter that you have. So different size part, different sized particles and the number of particles in each of those size categories. And then you measure air coming out on the discharge side of the negative air machine. And all things working right, you should see virtually 100% reduction on all the particle sizes till you get to the very small sizes. So you get down below one micron or 0.5 microns. Now you're starting to get into some, you know, some potential for drawing around the test and all of that type of stuff. But if you're seeing 99% or more across all your channels, then uh, the chances that the HEPA filter is working right are incredibly good. You cannot certify a negative air machine using that kind of a test, but you can get a determination as to whether there's a problem. That's why I call it a red flag test. If you do a downstream test and you start to see, you know, uh, one micron size, three micron size, and you've got 20%, 30%, 40% particulate blowing by, that's a red flag to say maybe there's a problem here um, and that unit maybe needs to be taken out of service until it can be tested more effectively. Or perhaps depending on the, you know, the degree of the filtration, how the unit has been worked, uh, the owner of the unit, the contractor, might make the decision, hey, it's time to change the filter. When I change the filter, I have to have the HEPA filter 
validated or performance leak tested anyway, which would be the test I would do um, when the red flag goes up. Uh, so I have to do that anyway. Let's get this unit back up and running so I know I've got it for the next six, eight, ten months, a year, whatever uh, time frame you're, you're looking at from a maintenance perspective. Most of those HEPA filters, if they're properly maintained, they, they last a very long time. They can last for two, three, four years as long as the pre-filters get changed out effectively. If you don't manage the pre-filters and... effectively, then you use a very expensive filter to catch a rock. Yeah, so yeah, pre-filters and making sure they're installed properly and proper maintenance on those units is really important. And, and you know, you mentioned certifying the HEPA filter. I mean, we, in most cases, we don't need to go to that level on these projects, but using a particle counter that gives you, especially you know, five-channel one or something that really gives you the uh, depth of data that you can rely on and understand that, hey, the filter's doing, we're pretty darn close to that 99%, 99.9% reduction uh, of the particles that we're most concerned about. You can be pretty comfortable that it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And so, you know, tracking that, and the nice thing too, the, you know, the newer gear will keep that data and store it and you can export it into Excel. And, uh, you know, that feeds into this documentation piece. Um, you know, as long as you're properly maintaining the equipment, and in essentially know how to handle the the download of the data and interpretation of the data, um, you should be in pretty good shape. So yeah, I mean, we certainly we've been involved in projects where um, the hospitals, through the specification on the project, have required a performance leak test uh, for all of the negative air machines when they arrive on site. So basically, when the machine arrives on site, you have to do an in situ. Um, PAO test, or what a lot of people would call a DOP test, even though we don't do DOP anymore. That's the more common name in the industry. Um, they would do a PAO test that would certify the assembly as a whole as meeting the HEPA filtration standards. From that point forward, generally it's a qualitative test, uh, and the particle count testing would be would be a great way to do that. And you, you can just imagine now, when you think about if I'm a contractor uh, working for a hospital, and, and, and the hospital's team uh, is meeting with you at your weekly or bi-weekly construction coordination meeting or whatever you want to call it. Um, and you're able to lay down in front of them. Here's our daily test results over the last week or two weeks since the last meeting for all of our negative air machines. And they're all showing 99% plus reduction on all the channels. And here's our differential pressure log. And you got these nice charts, graphs that show that you're at whatever pressure they have specified. And if there's anomalies, and there will be, where the anomalies occur, there's an explanation for that and uh, uh, an action that went along with it. Well, listen, you know, on this particular time, we lost the pressure because, um, I don't know, the, the plastic tore off on the barrier. Um, but because we had a differential pressure monitoring equipment that was alarmed, our site super got a text message on his uh, cell phone and he immediately responded with a workforce to reinstate the barrier. So we were we were down for 15 minutes or 10 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it is, but we knew about it the minute it happened. We had a response plan for it and we put it back in place. What kind of a confidence level do you think an owner would have in a contractor that provides that kind of information at the 
um, at the construction coordination meetings. They're looking at it and they're saying, this contractor understands what we're concerned about and what our risks are. This contractor has ways to know when there are problems and has action plans to deal with those problems. We're, we're, good, exactly. we're good with this well, contractor. We want them to work here more often. And I'm glad you brought the owner up. So what about uh, the owner's perspective? So I mean, they, they're going to have some different interest in terms of monitoring, particularly when it comes to air quality. Um, you know, one of the things I've seen, for example, is doing having their own particle count, or maybe they share one that that's really ownerships are relevant, but doing some random sampling in and, you know, near the construction site, but also around the hospital and doing a comparative to see, well, what kind of air quality do we have and adjacent to the construction site as it relates to the rest of the hospital. So there's a couple of things I think that the owners are really interested in. Number one is they they have to have some way to be able to demonstrate to their leadership and, and ultimately, I suppose, to their clients uh, that the construction site is not detrimentally impacting the air quality, either in the areas around the site or other areas that might be impacted. So that's a that's an ongoing air quality monitoring program within the within the hospital. They'll adjust that if there's major construction going on to include some kind of an indicator around the construction area. The the other thing that I think the, the owners are acutely aware of, and again, particularly in a COVID-19 world, is um, what happens if there's an outbreak in the hospital? Do, do we have the ability to do a proper investigation to determine whether or not the construction site either is a, a likely source or a highly unlikely source of a contributor to that particular infection. So the challenge there is um, that oftentimes they're looking at an outbreak or as some of the infection preventionists might put it, a cluster of cases with a particular organism. And each organism has different incubation periods and different characteristics so as much as the hospitals will be interested in what the differential pressure is on the site right now, which is where, you know, qualitative and quantitative non-recording devices might work effectively, they may also be interested in what did this construction site look like eight days ago, 10 days ago, or in the case of the uh, coronavirus right now, we're talking about 14 days ago. Well, give me that window from five to 14 days. Uh, so I can get a sense of whether there's any significant potential for release of a pathogen from this work area within the time frame as the incubation period for the organism at hand. And it becomes an investigation tool. Um, and the reality is if, if you're doing your job well on the construction site, very quickly the investigators will look at that construction site, look at the data that you've got, look at your action plans, and look at it against the outbreak curve and quite quickly be able to determine, well, you would hope that the determination would be, um, there's a very low likelihood that the construction site was the source of this potential pathogen. Um, or, you know, perhaps the, the you know, the, 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 the breach in the pressure, the records show that the breach in the pressure occurred at exactly the right time. So maybe we do need to look a little closer at construction, but generally speaking, those investigations for, um, for clusters of, of fungal infection cases are looking at a, a multitude of potential contributing sources and they start to kind of chalk them off one at a time. 
that one's very low likelihood, that one's very low likelihood. And if you're working on a construction site, the best answer you can possibly get is that one's very low likelihood we're going to go look in other areas. It's not your problem. Yeah, I mean, certainly we've been, we've been on uh, we've been on construction projects, you know, major construction projects, additions to hospitals and so on. Whereas you mentioned right out of the start starting gates here, uh, there's a problem in the hospital, and all the guns turn towards the hospital, the contractor, because everybody says, "Well, we weren't doing construction before, and everything was fine. Therefore, the construction must be the cause of the problem." And, and unfortunately, contractors kind of work in that guilty until you can prove yourself innocent world. And having the right monitoring equipment, and you know, there's there's no one right answer here. There's pluses and minuses and all of this stuff. Having the right monitoring equipment and the right data recording allows the contractors to prove their innocence. Exactly. Uh, you know, and I think it's important too to think from the owner's perspective about you know how can you be comfortable that your air quality is not being impacted by the construction site in other areas of the hospital. An example, I guess, is the best one I've ever seen is where um, it was associated with the project, but not directly tied with the construction activity. They installed a buck hoist on the exterior of the building to uh, eliminate pathways through the building, which we talked about already in an earlier episode, how that can impact infections in the hospital. And, you know, which is a great thing to do and a great mitigative strategy. But when they installed it, they actually impacted the building envelope in a way um, that and the fact that the building was slightly negative, um, they were getting essentially unfiltered air into several of the units in the hospital on that side of the building, couldn't figure out where it was coming from. But the nice thing about having this, uh, you know, ongoing monitoring program was very early on, we realized we had a problem. We were able to put up some barriers and create positive pressure envelopes to prevent that those particles from getting to patients until we could analyze the problem and actually fix it yeah i mean you you're you're dealing with challenges that are microscopic so you you can't see the challenge unless you have the tools to help you see it and certainly differential pressure monitoring equipment and uh, air quality testing equipment is the kind of stuff that you need to be able to see that stuff this is going to be the Gordon Burl show pretty oh, soon. Awesome. <laughs> thank you everybody for your attention, John. I'll let you talk us out of this thing. Yeah. Thank you guys. You know, you think about um, everything that's going on in our world. They, they keep saying every in, in any venue in our world right now, in any industry, nothing is ever going to be like it was. Um, and I think this is one of those places and one of those conversations where that's probably a really good thing where people will never think of invisible bugs the same. And yeah. this, the idea of monitoring may get a whole new level of attention that it's always deserved. Um, and uh, I, I'm really glad. I think this is a great opportunity for us to talk um, about monitoring and excited to get another chance to talk to Gordon. Um, so Gordon, thanks again for being here. Steve, thanks as always. And we'll see you next time on Compliance for the Sake of the Patient.